Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. That song literally is in my head like almost every morning now when I wake up because of you. So Aww. thanks. <laughs> I just want to jump right in here and, and I'm going to brag on you a little bit. I'm really, really proud of you, Laura. You've been doing so many wonderful things in Charleston and around the country. We've been we've been doing our own little side productions as well. And we're kicking rear end. And I just want to tell all of our listeners, you have actually you had like a really like a triple couple of weeks with being honored by different things. You were honored in a 40 under 40, which is really cool. I want you to talk about that. You were also given a shout out from Women We Admire as the top 50 women leaders in South Carolina. And then you also were highlighted and got a shout out by the South Carolina Bar Association. So I am pretty impressed to be talking to you. Um, yes, no, thank you, you everybody you for, <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm pretty busy. No, I mean, it's, I'm it's so actually proud been, of you. It's incredible. Well, thank you. And I'm, you know, it's always nice. It's actually more exciting to hear from all of my friends and family that they're proud and excited and feel like this is a much earned in a way accolades, but it has kind of been like this thing where it's like, I don't know how the, when did the word get out, but it's- You're really kind of kicking rear end. You're just, you're on fire. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to keep up with you, Todd. I'm just trying Stop. to, you know, to be honest. No, but I think it's this this podcast, this uh, working with the production company with Four Corners, it's given me a lot of confidence. And I feel like it's helped in a lot of ways, you know, with my own, with my restaurant, with other businesses. So it's, it overall has been a, a little bit of a, a good snowball, if you will, of, of gathering all that same confidence and you put it out there, you manifest it and it comes back to you. So yeah, the 40 under 40 thing is a huge honor. And that's basically just to recognize people that are have excellence in their field, but also in giving back, which we know is directly huge. tied to the oxygen ball. So yep. that was a big catalyst for that. And then the top 50 women leaders, I wasn't even that came out of nowhere and I've, I'm so honored. So thank you, women we admire for that honor. And then, yeah, this weekend, the South Carolina Bar just highlighted the fact that I have done so much fundraising and giving back to the community. And they just want to highlight lawyers in South Carolina that are making that part of their priority in life. A lot of people know that you work your ass off, but you do. You are just, you get up and you start. It's kids, then oh, stop. work. Oh, but yes, and I then, do. And, no, you do. You, you know, you're inspiring. You inspire me and a lot of ways to show up for myself as well. And you're, I just really wanted to highlight that this morning because I thought, how cool is that? Like a triple whammy in two weeks. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, next thing, I guess a Nobel Peace Prize is next or, I or something. I'm, I'm but ready for it. <laughs> Got to write your memoir. Yeah, we're definitely going to at least get an Emmy or something. What do you get for podcasts? Like we should definitely. I don't know. Somebody nominate us out there. But no, thank you so much. And I know also it's while I've been having these on fire weeks, you've yeah. had a, some, a rough couple of past. It has been a rough call. I got COVID when I got back from being out at sea doing my one minute concert, and I did everything right. Like I'm fully vaccinated, I'm double boosted, all of those things. I wear my mask everywhere still, like a crazy. Yeah, person. every time I'm on the phone with you when you're there, you're always have always, a mask on, and I'm always. like, "What are you doing?" But now I understand. Ships are petri dishes for it, but the CDC just announced the week I was on. Actually, that they were suspending all you can no longer have to be vaccinated to take a cruise. 
There's no more rules, basically. They're throwing them out. Each cruise oh, line can do their own thing. Like if a certain cruise line wants people to be vaccinated, they can say you can't come on if you're not vaccinated. However, it's no longer a requirement by the CDC. So that's going to be a big, it should be big for the travel industry, for the cruise industry. They will get a lot more bookings. But I, I'm a little terrified because I've dodged this bullet for two years and I finally got it. And man, did it knock me on my butt. I felt yeah. so sick. It was not cute. It was really, really not cute. I mean, I obviously wasn't there to, to, to really witness the sickness, but I can confirm that this is not, this is not like even, thank God you're boosted and vaccinated because it's like, what a worried the crap out of me. That's what Mama Jackie said. That's what Duchess said. She yeah. said, you know, well, think about it. If you hadn't have been vaccinated, you would have been on a ventilator. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I'm really glad well. I wasn't. <laughs> Okay, stop being dramatic. But for real, it was. But for real, it was awful. But so that's why today's podcast is going to be such a palate cleanser, I think, for me. Yeah. Even though it's we're talking to this wonderful therapist named Lair Torrent. Yeah, which is a ear catching name, even if you know a little bit already. (laughs) I love it. Lair Torrent roped in. Yeah. Yeah. And it was somebody that we would touch on later, but it's somebody that we ended up crossing paths and that neither of us knew going into this. But, you know, I read his book and we were just all in kind of getting the wisdom from this guy. And and I think that everybody's really going to take a lot away from it. Being an expert in the field, it's, it's much more about, I think, can be helpful for a vast majority of of everybody out there. Everybody has relationships. It doesn't matter if it's gay, straight, just friendships, whatever. He's got a lot of insight into that. So I'm excited for everybody to listen to this. Same. Can you read his bio a little bit? I will read his bio. Here we go. So Lair Torrent is a licensed marriage and family therapist treating clients from holistic perspective, meeting them where they are and helping them to know themselves mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Lair sees clients individually as couples or as groups in his private practice in Charleston, South Carolina, via Skype and FaceTime all over the world. In an effort to reach more people with his unique brand of mindfulness-based therapy, Lair also writes on the subjects that come up time and again in his practice. He offers in-person workshops as well as downloadable versions of the same on the subject of couples healing, anger management, and more. Lair has been sourced for his expertise by New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, and NPR, among others. He also is the author of The Power of Love, and it is available where all fine books are sold. So please, without further ado, welcome Lair. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome Lair Torrent. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you. Course. How are you doing today? You know, as I said in the sort of pre-show, I, I got a little got to the beach, got some surfing in. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Love that. Love that journey. Yeah. I also did a big talk last night. I didn't tell you guys this yesterday when we spoke, but I did a, a big talk at the Low Country Mental Health Council Symposium where I presented my book and my method to other therapists. And anytime you speak in front of your colleagues, you're always like you're stepping out there with some, some new ideas, you know. So I did that yesterday. So I slept like you wouldn't believe last night. Oh, that's good. That's always a good feeling. <laughs> that's like a, an accomplished yeah, and, sleep there. Yeah. And all my books sold out of the bookstore, which was also great. Well, that's great. Congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Lair, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you interested sort of in counseling and therapy in general? 
Yeah, man. So I was born to a 15-year-old mother in what can only be described as abject poverty. She was kicked out of school for having me because that's what they did to girls back then. And I like to say that the pragmatic upbringing that poverty brings didn't allow for a lot of extra emotionality. And so I saw not a lot of great relationships. That type of upbringing coming from that sort of side of the tracks, if you will, in our culture sort of implants a level of not enoughness within one. And so I went out into my life trying to find love, trying to find connection to other people and myself. It wasn't working all that well. I was seeking fulfillment in things like I was a performer for a number of years and did pretty well by most standards. And then one day I just stopped and I was really, this is for me, for me, there was something missing. And my heart wasn't in, my heart was in acting because I wanted to be famous and rich. So everyone who ever did me wrong would see that I was famous and rich. And I wasn't doing it for the love of the game. I was doing it for that. And I was like, you don't want to live this lie. You're lying to yourself and everybody else. And so it was in that moment that I went home and I looked at my bookshelf and there was about six or seven books on acting. There was about 40 books on the brain therapy, self-help, how people move through the world. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's it. I'm pretty sure that should be the road that I take. And so I made a, a, an about face and started heading in another direction. That's pretty crazy that you kind of made that, well, at least you made that shift with an acknowledgement of why you went into acting to begin with. And we found some overlap, I feel like, on this podcast with actors that are either traumatized or <laughs> that business that will bring it out, a, man. It brings it all to the surface. Yeah. 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 yeah they, they, I don't think they're so different. No. And so that has been one of our revelations on here. So we also know that your wife is a therapist as well, which we find fascinating always <laughs> on this show, just having two people in the same profession at all, yeah. let alone both therapists. So could you tell us a little bit of how you two met and kind of what the positives and negatives are of being married to a therapist as a therapist yourself? So I may not be the best person to ask only because I don't find a ton of negatives. I don't find us playing that chess game with each other. I find us both. And when I explain our relationship, I think people, I always add, this is not Pollyanna by any stretch. We are often tough lovey with each other when we have to be. But there's a lot of compassion in my relationship. There's a lot of care. There's a lot of, I'm going to be sure that people who like to ring the codependence bell would say, oh, isn't that codependent? And it's for me, I think we're supposed to show up for each other. We're supposed to take care of each other. We're supposed to create a space that's conducive to healing, not fix each other, but conducive to healing. And I think that's what she's incredibly adept at. And I think that's what I'm incredibly adept at. It's not that we therapize each other. But we have a real understanding of what people go through, whereas a lot of people in my practice, couples who don't do well when there's something like trauma or someone's dealing with something big and it's inconvenient or it's hard, or I just don't want you to feel how you're feeling, they'll try to fix it. They'll find it annoying. They'll, people, they'll tell people to get their shit together. Not really helpful. We're able to let process happen. And that's the beauty, I think, of our relationship. We're allowed, we're, we allow ourselves each other's space to process. Now how we met, we met in the bar. She was interviewing to be a waitress. I was a bartender. I walked downstairs one day, one fateful day to get my drawer and my towels and 
prepare for the evening. And I walked in and I looked at her and I shit you not. And I don't think everybody gets this experience, but I looked at her and I said, there you are. And yeah, I was fully engaged in another relationship at that point. I'm not going to lie. And I fought it tooth and nail to, you know, this can't happen. But, uh, uh, and I was head over heels for her. I just knew it. And we've been together for 21 years. Wow. Yeah. In your book, I, I read, a, you kind of skimmed over the fact that you were in another relationship when you met her, but you know, things happen. Yeah. For that person's, you know, that's her story too. And we still have people in common. And so when I wrote it, I wrote it with a lot of reverence for her and for the fact that like, I'm not sure she likes me at this point. And there's a process that happened there and that's hers. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to share her story without her input. I felt that was important to skim over that that way. Yeah. Yeah. Not secrets, but privacy. Yes. Well, that was kind of you as a therapist. (laughs) As a human, I think. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Can you sort of explain what a holistic perspective is in therapy and how you sort of incorporate Eastern psychology into your work? Sure. For me, holistic means mind, body, and spirit. I think we are spiritual beings having this very physical experience. And it's important to go to the mental and emotional and look at all of the modalities that would look at our circuitry mentally and emotionally, for sure. But I think therapists who are unwilling to go to the spiritual space, they're leaving a big element out. Now, if a client says to me, yeah, this is not in my cosmology, that's, that's not what I believe, fine. But I do get to a point often with clients where it's important for us to look at something bigger, look at the spiritual aspect. And I don't mean like God on a flying on a white cloud with a beard, not that. It's whatever speaks to your soul. And the Eastern element is is interesting. You know, the, the Eastern mind is often very, very different than the Western mind. The Eastern perspective brings in a lot of elements of learning to accept things that from a Western perspective, we wouldn't be able to accept because we fight against everything in our Western culture, the Eastern perspective of acceptance as an allowing for, Tara Brock wrote a book called Radical Acceptance. She is a clinically trained psychologist and Buddhist psychologist. And it's all about our ability or inability to accept the things in our lives that come our way that we need to kind of find space for instead of battling against it. And so in a nutshell, that's how the Eastern perspective comes in for me. To that point, you really kind of emphasize the importance of things like mindfulness and the law of attraction and and your work. And can you kind of explain some of those concepts and how you've incorporated them and how they can be used as tools in therapy and, and in life for everybody? For me, and look, I'm trained both ways, right? I had a four-year training at the Helix Training Program where it was all sort of Eastern-based, metaphysical, spiritual stuff. And then I went to a very, very Western clinical program for my licensure. Now, I don't know how we change our habits, we change our behaviors without self-awareness. And that's an element that is just not taught. Self-awareness and mindfulness as the self-aware key, as the practice, is not taught. It's an Eastern perspective. And for, in Western at all, it's not taught? It is now. I mean, it's, okay. it's starting to seep in. But you've had people, yeah, you've had, you've had, it was not part of my, as a matter of fact, my mentor, my teacher is one of the preeminent marriage and family therapists in the world. She's been on Oprah twice. Okay. She thinks mindfulness is a joke. You know, she kind of rolls her eyes. I know mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. I'm like, I don't know how you, um, it's it's the ramp to anything you want to do different. 
you have to be self-aware enough to recognize when you're not doing the thing that you want to do different. So I don't know how we don't use it in life and in certainly in the therapy room. Yeah, because I mean, your patients would need to have self-awareness <laughs> in order to, yeah. you know, if there's an issue that the partner, you know, is like, I keep telling you, if they're not aware of it and they're not aware of their own behavior, then of course, yeah, that's probably the most important thing out of everything is people need to be aware of their own behavior. Well, right. And you find it in the smallest aspects and then the biggest aspects, right? Like you're doing that thing again, or let's say you're having a problem with booze or drugs or something like that, or those types of behaviors that you want to change. You have to begin to recognize in the moment and get off of autopilot. There's a default mode network in the brain called autopilot, and we all go on it all the time. It's the brain's friend. But autopilot, we just sort of start doing, doing the stuff that we do. And mindfulness allows us to push pause, to get some space from our thoughts and feelings and our reactions. And we get to go, oh, maybe now's the time to do something different. Maybe now's the time to make a different choice. And that is if you're arguing with your partner, and this is a historic thing. We've gone down these bad roads before. You can't go down a different road until you recognize that you're on the bad road. And mindfulness allows us the opportunity to recognize where we are. Do you think that there's, well, this is a two-part question. So mindfulness and trauma. One, do you have to be sort of, when I say trauma, first of all, what does that mean to you? And does it look different on everyone? For instance, what are the differences between experiencing trauma as a child and as an adult? And where does mindfulness come into all of that? Wow, that's a big question. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes he's deep. Mic drop. (laughs) For me, does trauma look different? Sure. I might be able to see the way trauma plays out in a person as an adult who's sort of unaware of their trauma. A lot of men in our culture typically don't like to use the word trauma. It makes them feel weak. It makes them feel vulnerable. Do I get to use that word? I think it was, isn't it just for war veterans? And what we're finding out is no. Is it for instance, when the biggest, most powerful people in your life, your parents do things like hit you or some other terrible thing to you, that's going to cause trauma. Now it does. It shows up as trauma responses differently in everyone. Sometimes they just look like they're there. They disassociate and go up into the trees, right? And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, not even home, not even near here because their body was unsafe for a long time. And so now it's up to me to recognize. I'm like, hi, I think think there may be some dissociative tendencies happening here. Trauma response may look like a PTSD response that, you know, people are shaking and crying and and all of that. So you kind of know what a trauma response looks like. I often have to sell it to my clients that they've actually, they're actually having one, which is kind of funny. I mean, a funny, haha, it's really? kind of odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then do you think part of that comes from that they're like, well, that's not trauma because I didn't label it trauma myself? Yeah. I don't want to, I don't necessarily <laughs> want to be a part of that group, which is normal. And there's also a lot of shame with that too, right? Like yeah. the idea that, and, and I'm not saying that trauma is shameful. I think we tend to go to a shame based place. When we recognize the level of our trauma, the the child part of us goes immediately to, we must be the wrong. We must have done something wrong to cause them, this person who made us, as an example, to treat us in the fashion in which they did. And so we make the parent all good and we become all bad. Unpacking that with people peeling back that layer and saying this, I think this is a trauma response. And I'll ask four questions. I'll say, listen, I want you to try as best you can not to think about this. I want you to drop into your somatic system, feel into your body. And as I ask you these questions, am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? 
And people cry in my office for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is when I hit on their truth. And those four questions tend to resonate with people and their core wounding. To Todd's question, how do you kind of bring mindfulness into that concept? Is it just being mindful of answering those questions and and being aware, or is there ways to practice it outside of therapy? There is. And so Ellen Langer, Harvard therapist who's written 22 papers and 11 books on the subject of mindfulness going all the way back to the 70s, she really peeled back the layers on mindfulness and, and sort of taking it out of the realm of like, I don't know how to do that, and said, Mindfulness is just noticing. It's just paying attention. Now, our brain looks externally because we're constantly searching for danger. That's what the brain does. It's looking externally to make sure that the world around us is safe enough. So taking a moment to look internally, that's mindfulness, stopping, pushing pause and beginning to notice. And so I'll just do like a little Mr. Miyagi on people and go, I'll say, so I hear you. I think that's what you think about your feelings. I'm wondering where you feel it in your body. And they'll go, Oh, what are you, why are you being weird? And I'll say, for a moment, notice if this resonates somewhere in your body. And then we start talking about the chakra system. I was just going to say, like, it's kind of, we're on the same wavelength, if you will, because that's a big question that we kind of had for you. It like really goes right into what we're going to, both Todd and I are kind of fascinated with this the idea of like the body keeps the score and Vandercloak. Yeah. Yeah. And we wanted to know if you, that you've shared that same sentiment, which obviously you do, but that it's been kind of mostly an Eastern medicine kind of topic or something that since ancient times they have explained, you know, chakras and, and feeling that way. And I think now we're kind of just coming around to that idea and like the Western culture. It's the truth. Yeah. We're just giving it a different name, you know, like it, I think in a way it's just chakras. But how do you, when you start talking about chakras with people, how do you end up healing or helping that trauma that is kind of stuck inside their body? That's the piece, right? How do we heal that stuck trauma? For me, I try to help my, my clients gain a relationship to it, right? Less than go in there and root it out and fix it. Very often, so what I get them to do is I get them to notice where it lives in their body. And that tells us something like if it's in the throat, is there something that you need to say? Is it the heart center? It's probably, am I enough? Am I lovable? If it's anywhere lower than that, that's some very like young trauma in your root chakras. And so that tells us some things, but I ask them to notice like the quality of it. And they're often like, what, like a dog that heard a funny noise. What are you talking about? Like, does, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it heavy? Does it feel like someone's standing on your chest? It feels like someone's got me by the throat. Okay, who has you by the throat? Right? And we go into that type of investigation to see what's actually happening in there. And I'll say to them, okay, so that feeling you have in your chest or in your stomach is an example. Stomach, you feel powerless, probably young. So I'll say, if that area of your body had a mouth, what would it say? I'll go, just the first thing. And then they'll say something. And now that area is actually speaking to us. And it might say like, I want to get the fuck out of here or leave me alone. Who needs to leave you alone or, or what leaves, needs to leave you alone? And then I start talking about parts, right? So who in you, how old were you when you experienced this thing? And I'll have them get a picture of themselves as that kid, usually wearing a funny winter coat or something like that or, and I'll say, yeah, you're shaking your head. I'll say, 
look at those eyes. Look into those eyes. I said, eyes that look remarkably like the one staring back at me right now. And tell me about her. And then they'll go into it. Not in like from the object place, but from the place of the child. What is she doing? What does she need? What does she want? What does she feel? How does she feel about you standing there as the adult self being with her? And the relationship that that child part has with the adult self, that's often interesting and in telling. And so gradually I'll bring that adult self closer and we begin to give to that aspect of self the thing that it did not get. Carl Rogers, he was the foremost, like the first like humanistic psychologist and he really turned things on its head and really made it client centered and said, every client that comes through your door is looking for something they did not get. They're looking for unconditional positive regard. I call it, am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? Like I break it down to that. And so we look at that little kid and we find out what she or he needed. She never felt like she was safe. Holy shit. That's a big fucking deal. Now our job is job one. We make that kid in you feel safe. Now we know when you're having a trauma response, more than likely something has triggered that little kid in you and she is up and she's scared. And so rather than try to take care of the symptomatic pieces, we can drop in, go to that child part of us and go, it's okay. It's going to be okay. I'm here. I know. I know you've been alone for a very long time, but I'm here now. And this begins the process of, of reintegration. I've said a lot. So I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I, I think that this is all very important. <laughs> I'm, we're just, I'm like listening like, oh, blah, 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 this is awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's all amazing. And I think that we're going to, as we kind of talk about, you know, you do a lot of couples counseling, how all those different things play into that and how they come out. But no, we want to hear the stuff. This is, this is the stuff that needs to be put out there because a lot of people do come into therapy or whatever, and they just think there's this one problem they got to fix we fight too much or he talks badly about me. I'm annoyed by my, this one friend in my life or something. And it's like, it always comes down to something much bigger. That seems to be like very much to the heart of the matter when you're saying it's, it's, it's the, the child inside of us that we're, we're kind of battling too. Yes. And therapy is sort of like, it's a practice and you can't do spot treatment therapy. You can't go in and, and talk about the one thing about the friend that annoys you and then, oh, okay, I'm, I'm healed, I'm, I'm cured, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. I call that drive-by therapy. Drive-by, yeah. <laughs> drive-by therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And often I'll be like, I'll get, a, I'll get a number of drive-bys and I'll let people do that for a little bit. And so they'll go, okay. And I'll say, so like, three months, six, when are you going to call? When the tires are in the ditch again. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, this is what I call drive-by therapy. And you're coming in for a fix. And you and I both know there's some shit underneath the surface that you're just begging us not to deal with. You don't have to. You don't have to do it. But when you're ready, I'm here. And they'll go, fuck. All right. <laughs> yeah. Let me have a question for you. What is transgenerational trauma and how can we avoid continuing the cycle? So that's the stuff that gets handed down. There's an interesting thing we do in marriage and family therapy, and I don't think they do it in other licensures, and it's called the genogram. We borrowed it from the medical model, and really what it is, it's a big family tree. And in the medical model, they just look at how disease trends in a particular family so that you can kind of know like what you're going to get or not get. In marriage and family, we look at all kinds of different aspects of a family, like, oh, look at that. All the women in this family have been educated going back to the early 1900s. That's an interesting thing. That's a strength. We look at the strengths and some of the th other things too, like abuse, 
alcoholism, drug abuse. Oh, look at, we have a lot of fathers that leave here, right? And so when you sort of map it out, people are, they're aware of what went on in their family most often. But when you see it on a piece of paper and you're like, oh, wow, all the dads tend to leave as an example. Now you've been made very aware of this piece or there's been childhood sexual abuse in this particular family, or there was a lot of rage and fighting and divorce. Becoming aware of how the people before you did it, becoming really aware of what it is that you experienced in your childhood, not exalting your parents as some people like to do, and recognizing that we are pulling things forward. So I think I shared this with you guys. My stepfather, he was a dick. He he was, he was a great hockey coach. He was a terrible father. And he talked to me. He wasn't necessarily abusive, but he just, he wasn't very nice. And he could be pretty heavy handed with his words when he was showing me up. And I realized that I was doing some of that as we do with my teenager, my 13 year old boy. And he sort of made me aware of it. And so we all sat down in the living room and I said to him, you're right. You deserve better than that for me. I'm talking to you the way my stepfather talked to me. And that's not okay. And he's like, of course, he was like, no, no, dad, it's okay. It's just, it's just, it's just, you know, every so often when you get mad, it's like, and I go, nope, do not take care of me on this. You don't have to take care of me on this. I need to take care of you. I need not to talk to you that way. That's a smidge of like, that's transgenerational trauma. And I'm handing it off to that poor kid. And I needed to fucking stop. And that's my practice. Yeah. So essentially, you know, just don't do it. <laughs> Well, be aware of it and change that's, be aware of it. And like, also look at the part of me. There is a part of me that if I'm honest, that if I, I feel so protective of these guys and I can overcorrect and there is a, a part of me because of my childhood that grew, that's a knuckle dragging ape and he breaks eggs with sledgehammers and he can be pretty reactive. I call myself a recovering angry person. This aspect of me is not welcome in my marriage and he's not welcome in my parenting of my children. He's not good at that. He's good at bar fights. I don't have those in this modern version of my life, thankfully. Yeah. But when he slips in, he slips. there's a rule in my house. My wife says it. She goes, when dad's mad, he's scared. And so I have to watch. That's my trigger. Like if I'm scared about something with them, with their health or if they're being mistreated somewhere, that part of me comes up. So I have to watch that. Be aware of it. Yeah, we'll talk about self-awareness. Yeah, I mean, that's some very deep self-awareness. And I think that's amazing. I think more people should maybe take a little look at themselves and where some of those... It's the practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, you know, speaking to that, I think it might help some of our, help us and our audience a little bit to think of it more concretely by going into the fact that you do many types of therapy, but you seem to heavily kind of focus on marital counseling. And your book, The Practice of Love, is a book primarily for couples, but for other people as well about essentially breaking old patterns, rebuilding trust, and creating a connection that lasts. Can you tell us what made you want to write this book in particular and why it's important that everybody check it out? Well, I wanted to write the book primarily because, as I said earlier, I didn't see love and connection in the relationships around me. My mother, she didn't have any real loving connections with the men in her life. My aunts and my uncles, save maybe one relationship, were all divorces. My grandfather left my grandmother in 1950 something with five kids. 
And so I think there was something perhaps in me that was wanting to heal that transgenerational trauma. And so when I went to my internship, I said, I want to work with couples. And they said, fine, we hate working with couples, so we're going to give them all to you. And so that was the impetus to start working with couples. What was the other part of your question? Why it's important that people kind of are aware of the ideas that are in in the book. Well, the thing that I did that was a little bit different is I said, and I called the book, The Practice of Love for a very good reason. And that's often an eyebrow raise. People are like, practice of love? What are you talking about? Why does it need to be a practice? And I'm like, because we should be good at it. You should be good at loving your partner, like good, like you could list it on your- Ooh, lair. Yeah. (laughs) That's church. You're waking him up finally. He doesn't have a coffee. (laughs) You should be able to list that on your resume under special skills next to like like breakdance bucketing, right? Like you should be able to say that this is something I'm really good at. Now, unfortunately, relationships have fallen into the bin of shit we should just know how to do. And we don't. It's fallen into the bin of things like filing your taxes, getting a mortgage. All of these things, there were no courses in high school. There was no curriculum in college that taught us these very fundamental pieces about living our lives. And romance is one of those. And so I've said, if you want to hit a good backhand in tennis, you practice, right? If you want to sing that song that way, you you go to a coach, you practice that thing, right? If you want to learn a new language, you practice. We practice the things we want to do well at. Why the hell are we not doing that with our relationships? I don't understand it. And so that's why I called it a practice to say that, like, look, even beyond seeing me, maybe you come and see me for a couple of months and we work your shit out. You should take that out into your life and make that your practice. And guess what? You won't need me again. Wow. Well, in your book and talking about this practice, you focus on what you call five guideposts to connection, which are mindfulness, the parts of us, the narrative, choosing, and personal responsibility. Can you explain those a little bit and how this helps when you're in counseling couples? So we start with mindfulness because that's the where we can stop and start paying attention, not to what the other person's doing, but to what we're doing. And we only have dominion over ourselves. I think couples will try to change the other person. It doesn't work, right? You can only change yourself. And so we start with what are you thinking and feeling? That's the point of change, right? Because we can also get ourselves out of our knee-jerk reactions to each other. We can stop, we can push pause, and we cannot choose our thoughts or feelings, but we get to choose our reactions to our thoughts and feelings. But mindfulness not only is the big de-escalator for couples who maybe they argue a little bit or what have you, it also proves to be the all-access pass, the universal remote, and the skeleton key to these other practices that you outlined, which is when I'm mindful and aware, I can ask myself, what part of me is showing up? And so people will say, well, what do you mean layer part? I'm like, you're the many vestiges of yourself, depending on the people, the places, and the things that you come in contact with. You are not the single organism you see staring back at you in the mirror. You need to know as a, for instance, I say fight, flight, freeze, which one are you? And they're like, oh, I'm a fighter. All right, so you're a fighter. You go into that compartment of your brain when you feel you are in peril. This is what you communicate through. And so here we are in the psychological community telling couples, you should say what I think I heard you say. And what I think I heard you say outside the therapy room when you're in your warrior part turns into what the fuck did you just say to me very, very quickly, Mm -hmm. right? So people don't have communication problems. They have parts problems. People really don't have so many problems except for they have the problem with the part of them that has shown up. The part of them that's shown up is not emotionally intelligent. It doesn't have that skill set within 
of compassion, empathy, and understanding. So if you're in the wrong part of yourself and you're trying to make a connection with your partner, it's like trying to send an email from your Instagram account. You can't do it. And the other thing I talk about is the narrative. The stories that we tell ourselves matter. As one man in my practice said, oh, you mean that little ticker tape I have running in my head about my husband every day all the time? I'm like, that's the one. Those thoughts create feelings. Those feelings become more thoughts and those become concretized belief systems about who my partner is and who they are not. And the problem is we edit that narrative and we sit inside of our heads and we edit that narrative and often from a very shady place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I have all the goosebumps Same. just because I feel like that's so true. I mean, it's just even in life, like with other people that aren't your partner. So imagine how much you do that with your everyday partner. We do it all the time. We edit, we prune that narrative as David Epson and White, Michael White like to say back in the 80s when they founded narrative therapy. They said, we prune the narrative. We select information that supports the prevailing narrative and we deselect information that does not support our prevailing narrative. Right. Oh. And so I had this couple in the lies we tell ourselves. Yeah, that land. (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, and and I'm not saying that, you know, we can just sit here and tell this great story about our partners when it's not great. We can't say, look at there's a weed filled garden, there are no weeds, there are no weeds, there are no weeds, and there'll be no weeds. Someone needs to be also doing things on the other side of that to help cultivate a good narrative. Now, sometimes that doesn't even matter because I've had people in my practice, this happened recently, I actually cover this one in the book, where this guy comes in with his wife and he's I'm actually a pretty good good dude. Like he was a good communicator, loved his little wife, loved his family, was a hard worker, but not a workaholic. And he was the one who called him into therapy. And we were trying to figure out what it was that was so wrong for her. And finally she just turned to him and she goes, I don't know why I hate you anymore. I just do. And we recognized that her narrative that she had built about this perfectly good dude had gone sideways. And it just proliferated. The fourth practice is choosing. And people will say, oh, you mean love languages? And I'll say, if you must. (laughs) Love languages are important, but as Sue Johnson liked to say about love and feeling she she wrote, hold me tight, therapists and the clients we serve are only willing to go to the waterline on this thing that we call love. And that is like, it's great to get a cup of coffee made just the way you like it. It's great to feel picked. It's great to feel loved. It's great to feel chosen. But we also want to feel understood. We want to feel gotten in a unique way. And so when we look beneath the surface of the whatever love language is yours, typically what we find is we find that wounded child. We find that aspect of self that's gone out into the world and is now looking for a reparative experience, right? And so Harville Hendricks said it best. He said, we are inexplicably drawn into the arms of a romantic partner who will, by their very nature, recapitulate our childhood wounding. This is like a very fascinating concept because it's something you said in the book is you really want couples to understand the wounds that bring them together. I was just really interested in oh. how that, how that, you know, how do you recognize? Todd has had a hard t- couple of weeks, so he hasn't had a chance to, to read the book, but I'm telling you, it spoke to me in so many different ways. And one being this idea of the wounds that you have as a child, you're, you're basically kind of trying to replay that yeah. out and fix it. Right. And, and how does that show up in therapy? Well, it shows up. Here's the thing, right? Most therapists, I think they're, we're dancing on the surface as Sue Johnson liked to say. We're there trying to fix their communication issues and we're there trying to talk about the money and the sex and the kids and the debt. And you're dancing on the fucking surface, man. You got to dive below there. 
Why are you feeling that way? What have you come here to complete? And so I asked those questions. Were you loved? Were you safe? Were you enough? Did you matter? I never feel like I fucking matter. That's important. And so when he buys you those little gifts or when she gives you words of affirmation, what does it make you feel? It makes me feel like I matter. Oh, that's probably really fucking important. Now I have the answer. I have the teacher's addition to my partner. When I do these things, it's not just that it makes me feel loved. It's speaking to that very basic core childhood wounding. And when you do that, you have the opportunity to make your partner not just feel loved, they can feel understood. Now, it's what Ellen DeGeneres said, right? She said, it's wonderful to feel loved. It is profound to feel understood. And I think that's true. This is where the healing happens in a relationship. And this, for me, is the very spiritual connection that two people can have. Two souls who know that we've come here to heal this peace. This is that heart-centered connection that I talk about in the book, where your relationship becomes imbued with something else, something bigger. Yeah. I think we all kind of, you know, there's the tropes of daddy issues or Oedipus stuff, whatever you want to have different kind of names for it. But it's just, I don't know, it's fascinating to me that you can almost look at, you can look at your partner in a different way once you kind of figure that out and, and then how you can change your, the way you view it. And then the way you view it changes the problem because you're like, oh, I'm just feeling this way because of this. And this is how you can help me fulfill that need. Well, right. But what do we do? We have a very myopic view. Like your partner is having a hard time. They're frustrated. They're angry. Maybe they take some of that on you. The very, very topical piece is we fight about whatever that is. And maybe we come to some determination about that or we don't. But what if you were to just be, have the wherewithal, the mind, the mindfulness enough to go, I see what's behind that protective part of self. I see the little girl sitting back there who doesn't feel like she was ever safe enough in the world. And yeah, you need to take responsibility for the shit that's coming out of your mouth right now. And you need to stop doing the thing you're doing because that hurts me. But I am totally aware that the reason you're doing it is because someone fucked you up all those years ago. And I care about that little girl inside of you. And I want to know about her. Don't tell me about this thing you're pissed about because it's probably not even a thing. What's really going on here is, you want to know from me that this is a safe enough place. That's a conversation we can have. And that's a healing moment. Personal responsibility is, it's like you have to be personally responsible to have mindfulness to do all of this stuff. You have to be self-aware. It all comes back to the same this it. thing. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's God, all just, it This is why I made it. We're good. <laughs> and you're done. Stamp. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're all fixed now. We're going to go. Um, no, I think that that, Podcast over. Yeah. No, I think that that just, I think Todd and I probably both have all the goosebumps of just yep. that it's almost a circle. Like you need one for the other and everybody has to be on board, you know? I've rethought that. Right now I have mindfulness parts, narrative choosing on a line. And then the common denominator is kind of what Todd was saying is personal responsibility and you have to be responsible for all those pieces. But I've been thinking about putting in a circle. Because those things are, they, they just follow in and fall in on each other. You pick one and you go with it and you're going to run into the other ones. But personal responsibility really is the key piece. Well, I have a question about where we come to, this is for all the couples out there. <laughs> if you're in a long-term relationship, 
How does trauma play into couples counseling sessions and how does it work when one partner obviously has severe more trauma than the other partner? So at that point, we push pause and we recognize that we're on perhaps a different track. And we don't want to make anyone in the room the identified patient, but we can't go any further without recognizing that there's a significant piece happening here. And let's just use the example that's been on the table, like he or she doesn't feel safe in the world. So that's the aspect that's playing out within them. And maybe they're acting out through that in various ways. It's so important for us to recognize what the traumatic response is and what it compels us to do. Now, I will also say, look, we may want to get you to some trauma-based therapy on your own, aside from how we look at your relationship. And so the track for me as a a couples therapist there is to be very, very aware that there's something happening on both sides. This partner has a significant amount of trauma that's up, and this partner has to see if they have space within them to go forward with recognizing that this person is in a healing pattern. It's going to be really inconvenient. It's going to be hard often. It's not going to feel fair. Trauma precludes you from a couple of things in a relationship. One, to know that I'm going to be okay giving my heart to you, feeling vulnerable to you, because vulnerability very, very often was a weakness. That's why I'm traumatized. Two, I'm probably not going to always be able to give you the benefit of the doubt. And the other partner will say, but I show up. I'm here. I've always loved you. I've never done this. I've never done that. I get it. The traumatized brain cannot see, by and large, your good efforts, right? It lives in the moment of the trauma very often. So I'll say, here's your brain. This is your trauma. And when the trauma grabs a hold of your brain, you see everything and everyone through the lens of that trauma. And so benefit of the doubt is very, very hard to come by. And so you'll find couples who are just fighting it out because of this trauma overlay. And so we have to be very, very aware of when that's up and what's going on. Again, not to make them the identified patient but we have to make room for it in a relationship the way we would make room for a chronic illness. So do you actually pause the sessions moving forward? Or do you say, do you say basically like you need to go see someone because this is, you know, obviously attacking your heart chakra? (laughs) Yeah. I want to keep the therapeutic hold for the couple because I think the couple itself is often in peril because of how the trauma is often, not always, but it's often playing out within the relationship. And so there would be a dual track, like, This person needs to go and get some trauma-focused therapy, maybe some somatic experiencing therapy. I don't EMDR is often good for very, very focused experiences, but they need to definitely give that trauma its justice. But I also want to create a container where we can begin to normalize that this is the trauma, this is how it's playing out, this is how it's making this person feel. Very often, the non-traumatized person, if that's even a thing, will use that for just Time you know, can feel very much like their feelings aren't being heard or have any room for. And so I think it's really important as a therapist working with trauma within a relationship to give voice and to give space to both experiences. And I think you need someone in the room kind of refereeing and helping out. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think it also goes to kind of the personal responsibility aspect that you're talking about, though, where to say, you know, once somebody realizes that they have that trauma that they should be able to say, okay, this is my part of it. This is my part in it. And then that can help the couple as a whole kind of, I don't know, not necessarily like you don't want anybody walking on eggshells, but to be aware that they might have their own work that they need to do that's outside of what's going on here. 
Right. And with the, the trauma overlay that I talked about a minute ago, will often preclude them from the ability to recognize that. The therapy I work with people is like, can we gain an ear for listening to your partner when they say, listen, I think your trauma's up around this piece. I think you're being activated by something I've done or said, but this feels like it's tripping into something that's older than what's happening in this moment. For everybody out there that's probably experienced this many times in an argument, mm -hmm. or they know that when somebody's yelling at them, that's not where it's coming from. What kind of advice would you give to say to somebody instead of saying, hey, I know that's the trauma talking and not this is not about me. How? What's a better way to say or that? What the fuck are you talking about? Why are you crazy? Because that's the other yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, what's yeah. a better, more healthy way to say that, I guess? It's, it's holding a compassionate but firm boundary of, hey, hold on. We don't talk to each other that way. Or you know, you set that the ground rules, you, you adhere to this is the culture of our relationship where we don't call names, we don't do whatever that's whatever's being done that feels not great to the person who's holding that space. You say, listen, I think something else is going on here. I can fully take responsibility for the fact that I was late. I'm just making something up. But this reaction does feel out of scope with the infraction. And we need to look at that. And we can push pause and save it for the therapist's room. Maybe they can help us or we can sit here and work it together. But I'm not going to be treated yeah. this way. You owe me better than that. But I'm also here saying, I love you. And I feel like, oh, there she is. There's that scared little girl who's actually the one who feels in peril. And the protector part that's here, she's not welcome here. He's right. Brene Brown says when you're setting a boundary, you can say to the person, I'm okay with you being upset about this. I'm not okay with you throwing that chair. You have to, you have, yeah. you have to sort of set your, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Look, no, and I say to people all the time, like we can talk about our anger. We just can't speak right. through it. <laughs> and so speaking through it is like, fuck you, motherfucker, or however comes out, the chair gets thrown across the room. Talking about our anger, and I know there's going to be people out there going, well, we don't do that, but check in. We, you may yeah. do it another way. <laughs> talking about our anger is like me talking about this microphone, right? It's silver and it's got this black cap on it with a couple of cords. I'm speaking about this thing, right? And speaking about our anger is I can feel I'm really activated right now. I know that I'm angry. You came home later than expected. And I know that it triggered something in me. And, I, and my first reaction is to want to throw a chair across the room or whatever it is that they want to speak to you poorly. And the other partner can feel that and they go, okay, okay, let's take a breath. Who's here? I'll have my, my, my clients go, who's here? There's a part of me, there's a protector part of me who just wants to throw shit at you. Okay. I appreciate you not doing that. <laughs> right. I'm just wondering <laughs> what you. it made you feel I wonder what it made you feel for me to come home late. It made me feel like I didn't fucking matter. Oh, that had to be hard. I'm so sorry. I did not mean to make you feel like you didn't matter. When you're ready, I'll tell you why I was late. But let's talk about what it feels like to not matter. This is the conversation I like to build within couples. To talk about our experience rather than through it. And also to talk about who's here. Who's here. That's interesting. That is, yeah. Who, who <laughs> is here? Right here? I like here? that idea. Yeah. Who is that? Maybe that is the best way to say instead of like, what the fuck is like, <laughs> Yeah. so who am I speaking with? Yeah. Ad nauseum. Who's here? Yes. I love that. Well, okay. So we've talked about a lot of 
situations where we're trying to bring back that trust and that understanding and the love and and everything. But what happens when it's not working? Or you personally, as a therapist, know that there's somewhat of it's a lost cause in a way. How do you kind of broach that topic with your clients and where do they go from there? Where do I broach that with my clients? You know, it comes up in particular ways. If I notice that someone's not doing the work, these are very specific practices. And we do what we want to do and we don't do what we don't want to do. And people argue with me all the time about that one. But that's just how we're geared. We do the shit we want to do and we don't do the shit we don't want to do. And when someone doesn't want to do the work, they're saying, this isn't worth it to me. And so I'll stop the presses. I'll push pause in the therapy and I'll say, it feels like perhaps you don't want to be here or you don't want to do this. What do you mean? Well, we have some very specific practices that we've talked about ad nauseum and you're doing none of them, which tells me perhaps you don't want to do this anymore. And they may argue with me, but at some point we probably come to, yeah, I don't. Well, I can't fix, I don't want to. And I'm not going to do dog and pony show therapy with anybody. I'm not going to sit here and take your money and spend my time dealing with someone who actually doesn't want to do the fucking work because relationships should be a practice and you should do yourself and your partner the honor of wanting to do it well. And if you don't, and look, you don't have to break up. You don't, you can stay with that person who doesn't really want to do the work to, to work it out with you or to be in a a healthier relationship, but you do have to lower your expectations about what you can expect from them and what you can't. Managing your expectations in life is so important. My brother says that to me all the time. Well, let's manage our expectations here. It's so important for so many reasons, but I'm sorry, continue. I just, I really do feel that that is so important that you said that. Well, Eastern expectations versus Western expectations. It's an important distinction. From a Western perspective, we expect everything from everyone all the time. We have expectations of ourselves, of our partners, of our clients, of our, whomever, our dogs, right? And when that person, our expectations are here. Or when that person or that dog fires here, this is the measure, this arbitrary space between my hands of our suffering. And so this is what people say to me, oh, you're going to ask me to lower my expectations. And I say, no. From an Eastern perspective, what we do is we look at the person and we go, who have they been historically? Like, how have they shown up? And I tack my expectations with who you've always been. That mitigates my suffering right there. Wow. We were talking about part, like who shows up. That was the thing that was, for me, that dictates all of our success in every area of life, no matter what it is. And certainly true in our relationships. So I draw a big old Venn diagram on the board, two circles intersecting with a shared circle in the middle there. And and so if we're going to have a conversation and people will tell me all the time, we have communication problems. I'll say you don't. What you have is a problem with who shows up, what aspect of you is showing up in that shared circle around tough conversations. I will make sure I know that my couples, as best they can, are showing up to tough topics in their wisest, most compassionate aspects of self. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, as we know, when you're doing this, if you're not in it, if you're not going to give your side of the effort, I mean, that, if anything, is already insulting to the other person in the relationship, but it's also not going to get you anywhere. So how do you help counsel couples after that realization? Do you continue to see people kind of individually? And how do you help them through the separation part, the becoming unentwined? It kind of goes a little like this. I offer it. 
I will offer couples who are coming apart space and time and say, you know, look, let's continue the work and try to do this from the best parts of self we can. Let's do this compassionately and, and intentionally. But very often one or both of the partners are like, fuck this. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Or one partner will say, I'd really like to stick around for a little while if that's okay. And very often I will allow that. And I know that sometimes, you know, other therapists are like, well, you can't really do that. You should really send them to an individual therapist. And they'll say, you know what? Rather than have them go and have to find that person who's right and tell them this story and unpack this thing, I already know the story. I've already been there. I'm going to spend that time with them if they want to stay and help them sort of debrief on what went down, what went right, what went wrong, and what are the ones that grow on. Right. So let's shift gears here and let's talk a little bit about same-sex couples. You told us that you have, a, you know, like a 60-40, 50-50 split in your clients right now who are straight and those that are gay. Do same-sex yep. couples have the same issues as straight couples? Does male male and male and female and female energy change the, the dynamic that you've seen? In my experience, beyond, I mean, I think the proclivities of two men together or two women together, there may be differentials there for sure, and as opposed to like straight couples. But I think by and large, we're people. We're just human beings trying to work our shit out, trying to feel like we are loved, that we're safe, that we're enough, and that we matter. I think those core pieces tend to supersede our sexuality and the mix that we have there. And so by and large, it's funny to me, you know, when you try as a, as a, especially in, the, in marriage and family therapy, you really give a lot of space for cultural pieces, sexuality, all of that. But very often when we get right down to it, I find that we're just people. And we will, I will laugh with the gay men in my practice who are like, they will say, they will out themselves. And doesn't this feel really heteronormative? And I'll say, it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> How did we get so hetero? They'll say, and I'm like, well, you're really not, but yes, you're a human being. So of course, some of the same things will play out. Yeah. What kind of, I, I know only because we, we touched on this earlier, kind of off air, but I know that you have some kind of observations and differences you've kind of noticed with gay couples as opposed to straight couples, particularly two men. And I think it would just be really interesting to, to hear kind of what those observations have kind of been. I feel like we talked a little bit about this, just the idea of open relationships. Gay men tend to be more open. They, they normalize that more and they'll have their version of monogamy that may include a third person sometimes. And what I'll do is I'll help them create a culture around that, like some understandings, kind of agreements to live by as they sort of move into that aspect, especially if they've been together for a while and they may decide at some point, like we have this great, amazing relationship. We don't want to mess this up. But two men seem to be by and large, and I'm not sure what this is by virtue of, seem to be way more open to it. And Todd spoke to this yesterday mm -hmm. as well, way more open to the idea that, yeah, like I can feel that jealousy that I feel and deal with it and feel it and, and all that process it. We'll talk about it. They just seem to have more capacity for that. My sexuality may live beyond just this one person. It doesn't mean that I love you any less or I want to be with you any less. And I don't know if that has anything to do with that very mammalian sexual energy that, that and I'm not saying that women, women are, don't have that. I think they have their own version of that, but that energy of two men, that testosterone is just, there's a lot there. And sometimes we need to, allow space for that. And so, you know, you'll have two guys who have come together and they have decided that that sort of heteronormative monogamy thing that we've seen, we're going to do that. And I'm like, 
maybe that's not for you guys. Maybe, maybe you should think about allowing space for something else. And often that's very, very helpful to build that in. And so that's just one of the pieces. And you see that maybe from their behavior. Like if one person is like, I had a slip up the other day, <laughs> you're like, uh-huh. yeah, and that slip up can come in all kinds I just of fell ways. Into him. Yeah, I found these. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Yeah, Whoops. I couldn't believe it. I <laughs> fell down and look what happened. <laughs> a bunch of times in a row. Yeah, <laughs> I just wasn't thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it's crazy. I don't. I don't know how it is in Charleston, but. There are a lot of my, I think we spoke about this yesterday, a lot of my gay friends in Los Angeles are more comfortable. I, I have dear friends in New York who are actually in a thruple and have been together for, they've been together as a thruple for eight years. And I'm still looking at the three of them going, I do not understand that at all. And I have, I've asked them questions like, is this a real relationship? They're like, oh yeah, it's a real relationship. I'm like, but isn't that just like a lot of energy to deal with? Like to, and they're like, it's. I was just going to say. I would think thruppling is a lot of energy. Well, yeah. thruppling and one of them is a father, had a child at one point. No so they all, when they all go visit this oh five-year-old, I mean, this five-year-old, this is not five now. The kid's got to be like 14 now, 14 or 15. When they all go to visit the child, they all go as dads. Dad pod. Yeah. And, pe- and their families have actually sort of adopted their polyamory. I'm asking my friend, I'm like, are you serious? Like, this is not a an issue for your mother or your dad? And like, it was in the beginning, but then they just saw that we were, we're it's not changing. I think that's, a, that's really interesting, too, because it's like, I almost in a weird way, I could see how it wouldn't be as problematic to everybody else involved. Like, the child just gets more dads. Like, they just get more love. I was going to say more love. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, but to to have to deal with that, all these things we've been talking about, about trauma coming up mm-hmm. and fights and, and all of that and the practice to have to have double the practice, that's what I would not be super down for. I'm like, now I got to do this with two of you. Like, it's got to be a little bit draining. And I've not actually treated a thruple per se, but the thing that I would be most concerned with is triangulation. Yeah. Two against Where- one. Yeah. And so you get like, if, if the energy between this is, it's called a family triangle or a Bowenian triangle in marriage and family therapy. And what the idea is, is when you have the three points of the triangle, if one person is sort of opted out or you're using one point as the point of conversation between two points, as it were, these two aren't talking, but they're talking through this guy. That's where so much of that, the energy in the relationship then dies. And so we really want to look and see where we have family triangles, whatever you're sexual abilities are, but I would think in a thruple, uh, triangulation would probably be, and this is just me surmising, would be an ad issue and something we want to keep a lookout for. Well, for all you thruples out there, let's keep that in yeah, mind. But I also, you know, the triangulation thing, I think is a big issue across the board that people across should look into. Like it happens all the time. Doesn't You, you don't it. have to be in a couple. Yeah. And it can cause, it can be, you know, a form of abuse. It can be used in a lot of different ways. So I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. One of the things, because, you know, I did read your book and I loved it. Thanks. But you, you mentioned in there that you have a lot of friends and family that often ask you kind of what your success rate is. Yeah. And in their minds, that meaning how many couples have you fixed? And you, and you say yeah. you don't measure your success that way. So how would you say you measure your success in counseling? 
I think I measure my success as a counselor and happy people. Now, if that means your relationship worked out, great. But I have just as many people writing me years later saying, thank you so much for getting me out of that dumpster fire or relationship. I know you saw it when I couldn't and you held space for it. And we're so much better off not being together. And I'm so much happier or <laughs> I've had people come to my workshops with one partner and years later show up with another partner and say, thank you so much for helping me find my way out of that. Now, you find a lot of therapists who are marriage, quote unquote, positive, And that's not me. You know, I'm not going to, if, if someone comes to me and say, you know, well, we're, we're going to try to save this marriage no matter what. I don't know, man. That doesn't seem like a recipe for success. Yes, we're together, but I fucking hate your face. <laughs> that's not anything I want to get involved in. If you're ready to kind of like deal with the resentments of the past, deal with the wounded parts of you and the things that you've come here to heal, fuck, let's start doing that. But if you're trying to save your marriage for marriage sake, I'm not your guy. You're going to be unhappy in this thing and go, and what I said, somehow I'm successful. No, I, I measure unhappy right. people. And I think that's really important because as somebody who is, I say, and this is no disrespect to my ex, but it, you know, I'm happily, I'm happily divorced and that it wasn't right for us. And I think it benefited everybody involved to uncouple, if you will, and not see that as a failure, see that as it was like a learning experience and that, you know, that there were some positive things that came out of it, such as my beautiful children, but it can be, and as we know with statistics, it happens and that it, it does can be a positive for everyone, not necessarily seen as a failure. No, I, I don't think divorce is necessarily a failure. It has that stigma sometimes. It sure does. And everyone who gets divorced or breaks up, they, they come at me and they're like, well, it's a failure. And I was like, is it? Let's, let's check the math on that. Because last time I checked, I'm on this road and everyone that I run into is a mirror, a teacher, a guru, if I choose to see them that way. And so we have this experience with this partner, less about it being the successful love relationship what did I learn about myself? What was reflected back for me? What did I reflect for them? That's the piece. If you want to put your exes into some sort of understanding that kind of moves you along, like I learned a shitload from this person. And I think they, they learned a shitload from me. This way, those things don't necessarily have to fall in as failures. They're just experiences that I had that taught me a hell of a lot about myself and the world around me. And so I think looking at each other as as a mirror, as a guru, as a teacher, and ourselves as that for the other person, then these experiences don't have to fall in that line of failure. Right. And earlier in the podcast, you you joked and said, you know, you've considered yourself a recovering angry person. But when we spoke about our wounded inner child earlier, if you could go back, if you, Lair, could go back to your 10-year-old self, what would you say to him? Knowing what you know now. Boy, I would say, hey, buddy. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Strap in. Yeah, get your helmet and your, and your mouthpiece and your cup because people are going to treat you like shit for a while. And the thing you have to know is that they're treating you like shit because they feel like shit about themselves. That's not who you are. And as best you can, try not to take on their crap. But I'm going to be here for you on the other side. I really love that. Personally, I wish I could go back and say that same thing just to know at a young age that 
hurt people hurt people. And it has nothing to do with you. I mean, obviously, you got to own your own crap when Mm -hmm. you're being a a bad, you know, not a nice person. But I think that we're, we can all relate to that on on a lot of levels. So I mean, now that we've dove very deep into a lot of these issues, we, we have a, a tradition on this show where we ask a question of the day where uh, Todd and I answer okay. separately later. But we would like to ask you as kind of as a little bit of a palate cleanser, just, you know, so bear with <laughs> me here. Okay. So it's kind of a two-part question. One, do you believe in reincarnation? And whether or not you do or don't, what or who do you think you may have been in a past life? So I've had my past lives read. Oh, really? Yeah. Tell us Dude, about tell. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because the person who said it, she, she's been doing this for years and years. And she said that you're the first person that I've ever come across that has never lived a life as a female. And that's very strange for me because I have, like, I was raised by women. I was raised in a house full of women. And so I feel very in touch with my feminine side or the aspect of me that might be that. Now, I have been, and I think this is true, I think we incarnate, I think we come down the chute into, and we have different experiences, right? This reincarnation experience. We're trying things on. I think we are essentially turning off the lights so that when we turn them back on, we can understand the light, so to speak, right? This relative world that we live in is the, is the dark, as opposed to the light that we experience just in our energetic selves. And so this, that, you... We are the little swatches of the great is from the curtain of whatever you want to call the power of the universe, God, whatever that is for you. And we're coming down here to perhaps experience that which we are not so that we may know that which we are, if that makes sense. And so I think we come down and we put on different hats and we're like, let's try this one. Let's try that one. Holy shit, that sucked. Or that was amazing. This is what I learned. And so we have this thing has an experience of itself other than just being the hum of the universe. And so that's kind of my cosmology and understanding of how things work. The reading that I got on my past lives was that you've always been in the place of wise man warrior, meaning that you would be a warrior in whatever time you were there, but you would also be a healer and a, and a person that people would come to, to deal with either their wounds physically, mentally, or emotionally, that you've done this job before. That fucking makes sense to me. It just makes sense in my bones. Yeah. Like, I feel like, yeah, I'm adept at this for reasons. Like, this is why that 10 year old can play a riff on a guitar, like nobody's business. Like that kid's done that shit sometime before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel when I do this. That's awesome. I think it's got to be a little bit validating to know that you're you're kind of living out the purpose that you're supposed to have in life kind of mm-hmm. over and over mm-hmm. again, but you're able to then pass that on to the next generation and learn mm-hmm. from it and then pass even more down. So that's cool. And it's cool that you got a reading. I think Todd and I need I to get that. whoever yeah. that was. His number. <laughs> I know. I want it. I want it so badly. Well, we can't thank you enough for your time this afternoon. I mean, there's yeah. so much. Like we could have talked for hours and hours, but just for the like the sake too. of 
yeah, the, the sake of time, we would love to have you back anytime. Let's talk more about lives. You, you mentioned okay. at some point when we spoke that your wife is a medium as well. So yeah. like, that's a whole other thing we could go into. So mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I just think this has been incredibly enlightening. Thanks for having me. I've had a really good time talking to you guys. Good. And I don't want to give all the secrets away of the book because I want people to go read it. It's The Practice of Love. Where can they find it? Yeah, where can they find it? Wherever finer books are sold. If you want to support my local bookstore, Buxton Books, here in Charleston, Polly at Buxton Books has it on the shelf and in the window and all the prominent places. So that would be great if people could support her and you know those smaller retailers. But if you want a quick fix, it's on Amazon. It's also on Audible. So if you want to hear it, that's great. And if you want to hear and see some of the excerpts of the book or just my philosophy, I'm at Lair Torrent Holistic Therapist on Instagram. Uh, that's how I kind of got turned on to you was your Instagram. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have some great, great videos. Oh, thanks. That sort of break down the book, I'm told. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I told Todd, I was like, you know, he, he's kind of a bite-sized absorber. And so I, yes. you know, I think it's it's good because it gives you kind of something to think about each day, yeah. you know, and then you're not overwhelmed with all of this. If you want a little baby steps into it, I think it's a really really good to follow you. So we'll put all of that in the show notes. Minute and 30. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a okay. perfect little bite size, but we'll put them all in the show notes. And again, can't, can't thank you enough. And we, we can't wait to, to speak with you again. Rockstar. Thanks guys. Yeah. I hope you do I, anytime. I'd love to talk to you guys. Sounds good. Okay. Awesome. All right. Have a great afternoon. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, what are your thoughts, Todd? Well, there were several mic drop moments during that podcast. I'm still a little like when he said that love is a practice, like you practice, you know, if you want to get better at singing, you go practice that that song. If you want to get better at whatever, we practice that. And the fact that he said love is a practice and we're not taught it in schools how to love our partner. You know, growing up, there's not really a, a venue for that. We're not given a, a class on like this is respectful behavior. You just sort of learn it from your parents over the over the years, and that was sort of a oh god, you do have to practice on how you love yourself and how you love your partner. That's what I took away. Yeah, I agree that that was a really big message that I think that a lot of people can can learn from. I think everybody's kind of been told like oh well, you need to wake up and and choose your partner every day. It's like, it's more than that. It's like learning how to interact with your partner, how to control yourself, like the self-awareness aspect of it, of like, I know I'm doing this for this reason. And I'm, you know, and, and taking a step back when you're pissed off or whatever and saying, this is coming from this. And you make me feel this way when you do that. I really... I took a lot from when he brought up the love languages because, like, I love love mm-hmm. languages. Right. But I like that he's like, yeah, okay, those are great. But there's a root to that. Why is it that words of affirmation are your are what you need? And it's because of a deeper lack right. of something you didn't have. Right. And then when you're also – also something that he talked about that was really kind of interesting was the transgenerational trauma and how that can play – when you're dating someone, you're basically dating all of their their grandpappy too, because and yeah, what they pass down exactly. to, to you know. <laughs> so you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're dating the whole always, family. 
you're dating the whole family. <laughs> People <laughs> think they problems. say that and joke that, but <laughs> you literally actually are like, because they didn't have the lesson like we talked about of how to, how to do things. Their only lesson is from what they saw growing up. So exactly. And it's learned behavior. Yeah. I, I just think it's also just so crazy that we found this guy because he's a fascinating person, but that he just so happened to live in Charleston. And that's crazy to me because we found him. We didn't know he lived in Charleston. Yeah. And then to add on to that, that I literally asked the question of the day to him and he's like, oh, I've had a reading on that. Like, we didn't talk about that before this. No. So <laughs> I just feel like there's a lot of weird kind of things yeah. that worked out with that. We should ask to get his wife on the program. I mean, she's, yes. she is a therapist and a, a medium. That fascinates me because I'm into all that yeah. woo-woo stuff. Yeah. No, me too. I, I, let's do it. Let, that's our next phone call. But I found him to be super relatable. Yeah. He's a good dude and he, he knows his purpose. And he lights up when he talks about people looking inward. He seems to get off on healing. Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> We were talking about the his Instagram. You can just check it out easily. He's a good looking guy. He's got lots of like nuggets of knowledge and he's very good at distilling that. And I think that that's, yes. you know, I know we're all busy, so we don't all have time to do all this work and go see Lair. But, you know, it's worth a shot to give him a give him a ring if you're going through some some issues. But I think overall, we're, we're lucky to have him on here because now we've got to connect. 100%. And I like when he was like, if you ever need any like a therapist perspective, I'm like, don't, don't threaten me with a good time. Like we will bring you back. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess speaking exactly. though to the, the reincarnation thing, I think I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question of the day. Same question. So it's still kind of a two-parter, but do you believe in reincarnation? And if so, or not so either way, what or who do you think you were in a past life? Well, I do believe in reincarnation. I can't imagine that this is the only time I've been on this planet. Yeah. And I also got a reading once. Really? Back in the day, yes. I'm the and only one. Yeah. I mean, I was several people. I was a little boy that came, that was on a ship that came on a, on a ship back in the day. Like I was a stowaway. Is this why you're, you perform on cruises? Maybe. I just love the water. <laughs> My Yeah. And then I was also a, uh, a very abused female during the Civil War era. Oh, wow. Apparently. They get very specific. Extremely abused, extremely afraid to speak, uh, like this whole thing. And I was like, okay, well, okay, great. Well, yeah, okay. well that's not me. a boy who was terrified and then <laughs> on a ship and then, <laughs> and then a battered woman. And then you oh, came great. out just, well, you learned from your lessons. You came out and you're like, oh, now I am a singer and yeah, I can, <laughs> I will not stop talking. Nobody's going to hit me. Thank you. Yeah, nobody puts. <laughs> exactly. Todd in the corner. <laughs> do you believe in reincarnation? If so, or if, if not, who do you think you were in a past life? I do believe in reincarnation in a, in a way of that. I don't think it's possible for like, I think our energy, your soul, if you will. I don't think that just doesn't go anywhere. Like, I think it has to, it gets recycled in its own form. And and I, I, I agree with you. I, I just can't imagine this is my first time here because I feel like I already have too many thoughts. You're too much of a boss bitch to not have been here before. <laughs> and, and, and this ain't your, you just have this, this ain't my first rodeo vibe, you know? Oh my gosh. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I do like to think 
that in a past life I was some kind of a leader in some queen, form. Queen, honey. Queen. A queen. You were a queen. Cleopatra, maybe. <laughs> but no, I honestly, I, I, I have had tarot card readings and, and palm readings. And one of the palm readings that I had done was they, they basically said that my lifeline, so you have like a heart line. Yep. That my lifeline was was very long, but that it was a little bit split. So that could mean either, and who knows if I'm even remembering this correctly, but it's the thing they wanted to impart on me was that 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 was more of a sign that I had lived many lives, not that I was going to necessarily like shatter into pieces at some point. Oh, listen, I totally get old soul vibes from you. Yeah. I get very grounded energy from you. You've definitely been here before, bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, thank you. That, that is all the reading I needed. Thanks guys. Todd just did it. I'm a new new reader. Girl, (laughs) you've been here before. Yeah, you are not new. Yeah. (laughs) I want to know names. I want to know time periods uh, just to go read about myself. But no, I I thought that was, you know, it's just cool to think about, you know, no matter what you. 100%. Yeah. And I, it's fine. Definitely yeah. feel like there's there are new souls and old souls in this earth. And I like to think of myself as an old soul. So I appreciate that you felt that too. Yeah. And gave it back. Definitely. Well, definitely, sir. Well, Lara Torrent, thank you so much for being on the program. We thoroughly enjoyed your energy. We enjoyed your knowledge. I can't say enough. I know. I honestly think the book itself was, it just put things very plainly in a, in a good, understandable and relatable way. So I just suggest everybody. I'm going to audible you know, it. Yeah, audible it. And you said he, well, he does, you know, hearing him this morning in person, he has a wonderful speaking voice. So if he's reading the book, I'm all about that. Yeah. And that's why I told you, I I kept referencing in the, in the interview that I had read the book, but technically I listened to the book and, (laughs) and he, and he has a great voice. This is not his first rodeo is all I, you know, as he's, as he told us. So very charming and knowledgeable human. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of fun and per usual, it's always wonderful to see you. So same to you until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.